turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We will see that the Creator provides again. Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. Well, there are two miracles that all four Gospels record. I mean, there are many that the individual Gospels will have, and some of them they share with one another, and some of them are unique to the Gospels, but there's only two that you will find in all four. One of them is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Definitely a capstone miracle, considering the full breadth and magnitude of his mystery, the second miracle that you will find in all four is the feeding of the 5,000. And we'll see by the conclusion of the sermon that it's, it's, it's actually a little bit of a misnomer. It should be called something else, and we'll get there when we get there. But this miracle, just as his resurrection is a capstone miracle for the entirety of his ministry, both in Judea and Galilee, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the massive crowd, serves as the capstone miracle of his public ministry in Galilee. His time in Galilee is coming to a close. He will soon transition to Judea and spend the remaining time there, his public ministry, where he is ministering to the swarming crowds, is coming to a close. Even when he's in Judea, he doesn't quite have the massive throngs, people pressing in on him from all quarters like he had in Galilee. And he will thus invest the remaining of his time, as he, as he draws away from public ministry, he will invest his remaining time more into the twelve. He will spend this time further preparing the twelve, all, of, all this time being spent in the looming shadow of the cross. He will spend it preparing the disciples to be ready for their great commission. And the key element in their preparation, the most important thing they can grasp in all of the teaching, in all of his preaching, in all of his miracles, in all of his signs, the thing that they need to grasp, and if they don't, then it, what's the point, is his identity. It is the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is he? If you remember, Mark tells us this in his thesis statement way back in Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Virtually every text, every almost every text in this gospel needs to be interpreted in light of that principal truth, in light of that thesis statement. Jesus Christ is not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is the Son of God. Now, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has been doing things that only the God of Israel can do. He's been doing things that only the Creator 
can do. He is forgiving sins. He is calming storms by simply speaking to it. He is instilling fear and commanding demons merely by his presence. He is healing incurable diseases. He is giving back life even to the dead. He is doing things only God can do, which the Old Testament provides testimony that God did these things. If you remember, God put away David's sins. He, David would write in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. God exercised authority over the waters when he flooded the earth and when he split the Red Sea. God cast Satan out of heaven. God healed Naaman the Syrian's leprosy. God restored the widow's son back from the dead. After seeing their miserable situation under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, God, like a good shepherd, gave rest to his wary people Israel. He gave truth, the truth of his word to his wandering people, and he gave food to his wanting people. He did all those things in the Old Testament, and he does it here as well in Mark six thirty to 44. We see Jesus doing the same thing that God did in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's almost as if the Old Testament was a rehearsal and this is God in the flesh visiting his people. We see him giving rest to the weary in verses 30 to 32. We see him giving truth to the wandering in verses 33 to 34. And we see him giving food to the wanting in 35 to 44. And we'll read each section of text as we look at each point. First, we'll consider that Jesus provides rest for the weary. Jesus provides rest for the weary. Verses 30 to 32. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourself to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. That sounds horrible. They went away in a boat, in the boat, to a secluded place by themselves. Now, if you remember, the twelve had been sent out. They had been commissioned to go out, and they had been given authority to do everything that their Lord Jesus Christ had done. They had been granted authority to preach and to teach his gospel. They had been given authority and the power to heal sickness, to cleanse leprosy, to cast out demons, and to even raise the dead. And if you look back up in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6, it tells us, Mark told us even then that they went out and did it. And it would take time for them to do this. This would take weeks, possibly even months, and to distract us while these six two-man teams are going out and covering the whole countryside to, 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 to bide time. Mark kind of, you could say, distracted us. He entertained us with the story of John the Baptist's execution. And now they're back. If you notice in verse 30, that Mark calls them for the first time, not disciples, but 
apostles, reminding us they have been sent by their Lord. Verse 30 tells us that they gather together with Jesus and they report. They reported on their endeavors. And I am certain of one thing, and that is that these 12 were very weary men. If you don't know, if, if you've never talked to me or, or to someone else after they have uh, engaged in public speaking, teaching and public speaking is exhausting. Standing up in front of people, projecting your voice, reflecting on your studying, making uh, instantaneous changes to your notes, going extemporaneous or deciding in the moment, no, I'm not going to say that, I'm going to stick to what I planned to say, uh, in inflecting your voice appropriate to the subject matter, uh, explaining different concepts to sometimes difficult people, reading people, and above all, timing. These are all things that weigh heavily on the speaker. And after, you, after one has spent hours preparing, with, uh, wrestling with the text on paper and in prayer, this is an exhausting, tiring endeavor. And those of you who have talked to me know that usually about five to ten minutes after I'm done, I start to slow down like my Duracell battery is running out. And most public speakers will tell you, and, and they'll admit that they, when the adrenaline is surging, especially if it is a, a topic or something that they are passionate about, they will tell you of the unbelievable highs when they are in the midst of, of, dis, of the discourse. But after the adrenaline is gone, they are totally, completely, utterly wiped. And that's how I feel most Sundays after one service. One service. Imagine being on the road, teaching for hours, days, being on the road for days, weeks, maybe months, sometimes spending long days on the road, sometimes perhaps having very poor lodging conditions. Then there is the fatigue that you would get from the stress of being rejected. We're not told of their success rates, but Jesus, if you remember, Jesus specifically warned them what to do. Uh, not, it didn't seem if they were rejected, but when they were rejected. Remember, he said to, to, to wipe, to shake the dust off of their feet. And remember, Jesus was rejected by his hometown uh, approximately 10 or 11, most of the 12 disciples are Galilean. And they're being sent to go out into Galilee to preach. And I would wager that most of these men are preaching in their hometowns. And I wonder how many of them were rejected, like Christ, rejected by their, home, by their own hometown people. I think we can safely assume that these men were exhausted by the time they get back. And Jesus himself being fully acquainted with exhaustion. You remember, remember the boat? Remember the boat in the storm when all the men are panicking? Where's Jesus? He's asleep. Because he was exhausted. Jesus is fully acquainted with the weariness of ministry. And I bet when they got back, he 
he can identify with the look on their face. He can sympathize with the sandbags under their eyes, with their slouched shoulders, with their hindered gait, with their slow, perhaps slowed speech, the red eyes. I think he could identify with them very well, and he gives them exactly what they need. He prescribes what they need, and that is a moment of rest. Unlike the Pharisees and the scribes who laid heavy burdens on the people and wouldn't even lift a finger to help, Jesus, the compassionate master, the, the, the good shepherd, gives rest to his disciples. It's as if he's saying to them, men, you have done enough for now. You have done enough work. The weight of the world, the weight of the ministry doesn't need to rest on your shoulders. Things are not going to fall apart if you take a moment of repose. Take a breather. And so the master calls them away to a secluded place so that they may rest. And they, they had to do this. They had to get away because Mark tells us that they couldn't even get an opportunity to eat. There are still people clamoring. You remember how many people swarmed around Jesus when he was doing miracles? There are 12 men that have come back from all around Galilee doing the exact same thing. You think maybe they, drew, they brought back a couple stragglers with them? Rest is important for effective ministry in virtually every aspect of life. And this is why the Lord God in his wisdom and in his kindness to us, he gave his people the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath for man so that even the most committed, even the most devoted workaholic might have one day of the week where he won't sludge in to the office. Now, this isn't, this isn't a, an excuse to not, this, this isn't an excuse to take unwarranted and unmerited breaks. A man named Bill Kelly says this, it would be well for us if we needed thus to rest more. It would be well if we were told, stop and take a break. And that is to say, if our labors were so abundant, our self-denying efforts for the blessing of others were so continual, so exhaustive, that we would be sure that, the, that these words of the Lord were for us as well. It's certainly a commendation for hard work to have a good work ethic. Paul tells us, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. He tells servants and, and slaves in Ephesians and Colossians to, to treat everything they do for their earthly masters, to do it as unto the Lord. But beloved, everybody needs to stop. Everybody needs to take a rest. And Jesus says to rest a little while. He's not envisioning, he's not prescribing uh, slothfulness or the entirety of a vacation, he says to rest a while. Rest a little. And this turns out 
just to be the extent of a boat ride. They're going to get in the boat. They're going to cross the lake. And their time of their brief repose, their brief respite is going to be concluded. But for the time being, for the hour or two that they get to sail across the gentle, windy waters, they get a time of repose. They get a time of relaxation. Psalm 103 verse 14 says that he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. And when the creator of everything that is, when the one who molded your frame tells you, you need to take a rest. He he knows exactly what we need. And so it's good to obey. So we see that Jesus gives his disciples rest. He gives the weary rest. Now we'll see that he provides truth for the wandering. Rest for the weary and truth for the wandering. Verses 33 to 34. The people saw them going. And many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities. And got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, Jesus offered them a little, a little break, a little rest, and that's exactly what they got. Jesus delivers on his word, does he not? The crowds are already frantic to see Jesus, and, and now his disciples as well, his disciples, the 12, who, who can now have shown the entire countryside this 50-mile by 25-mile area of land that they can do the things that Jesus does. Verse 33 tells us that the people saw Jesus. They saw Jesus and the disciples going. They see, they see them getting in the boat. This is probably the same boat as we've seen in previous chapters, USS Pulpit, probably a boat belonging to one of the disciples. The crowds see Jesus and the disciples sailing off. Mark just says that they go to a secluded place. Luke tells us that they went to or near the town of Bethesda, and the people can see them going off, and they can figure out where they're going, and they spread the word. And it says, Mark says that they ran there together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. That is some, that is some good sprinting. So they're near, they are close, they're not in the town of Bethsaida, but they're near it, which uh, Bethsaida was a was a small town on the northeastern rim of the Sea of Galilee. They're going from the area around Capernaum on the northwest to the area on the northeast. So, so they're not going a terribly long distance. Now, I want you to imagine something. You Imagine that you have just returned from a long business trip. That's not hard for you to imagine, I'm sure. You've just returned from a long business trip. You are tired. You are hungry. You are physically exhausted, you are mentally exhausted, you are emotionally exhausted, and perhaps there has been an emotional roller coaster as there have been highs and lows and stresses and joys that come with the job. And you have just been promised by the boss an opportunity to rest, an occasion to relax, a little R&R, and perhaps... Your spouse is, has already loaded the car. You, you just get home. The car's loaded. 
the boss said that you get to go on a break, and you pull out, and you're actually driving down the road. And you get a couple miles down the road. You, you, you do have, a, you have enough time to, to catch a few Zs, a few winks, maybe a half hour, an hour. And then the phone rings, and it's work calling. Now, I know what we would be tempted to do in our modern day, click, oh, my phone's not working. But the disciples can't send the crowds to voicemail because the crowds are there. The crowd, these crowds are relentless. We've already seen Jesus having to retreat into USS pulpit, into this boat. This boat has served both as his podium and his pulpit, and it has served as his getaway car. We have seen him use the boat to get away from the, to, to not only keep the crowds at a safe distance, but to keep them at a safer distance, which means getting away. We have seen him sailing off into the lake to get away from the crowds because not everyone had a boat. Not everyone could give chase. But there's one problem when you're in a lake, and that's you can't stay in the water forever. You eventually have to dock somewhere on land. And when you're on a lake, people can find you on the other side. And this persistent crowd shows up with almost comical timeliness. It's like those corny 80s and 90s sitcoms where someone says, well, we'll be fine as long as Jimmy doesn't show up and the doorbell rings and they answer it. Oh, it's Jimmy. It, look, it's the crowds. This has never happened before. I mean, so, so you have just been extremely annoyed by this inconvenience. How would you respond? And this isn't the exact same crowd from Capernaum. And this isn't just the local town. It was everybody. Look at, look at verse 33. They recognized them and they ran there together on foot from where? Verse 33. Where are they coming from? Just one town, just a, a couple villages, just a couple people here and there. All the villages, all the villages in the area. A huge number of localities. These people are just coming out of the woodworks and showing up. And they run there together in unison from all directions, like like some crazy Black Friday mob. As soon as the door opens and it hits midnight, and they run in. And they're running towards Jesus. They flock to Jesus as soon as someone sees where he's going. And beloved, this is the magnetism of our Lord. This is, the, this is the, the magnetism that Jesus has. He is that popular. He is that desired by the people. And Mark has been trying to show us almost from the beginning that even when he's seeking privacy, Jesus just can't seem to get alone. Beloved, he is, too, he is simply too great to be left alone. And considering how much, how desperate they are to see him. It makes their rejection of him all the more unbelievable. So we can assume how the disciples would have responded because they're men and and we're people too. And we can sympathize with that. How did Jesus respond to this, to the annoying persistence of the crowds? Luke tells us that he welcomed them. Mark, I think, 
go, go, does an even better job. And he says that he felt compassion for them. I love that. I love that. He felt compassion for them. Why? Why does the Lord Jesus feel compassion? Why does he feel pity? Why is he moved with pity when he sees these people? And that's because where the disciples see this rambunctious, annoying group of swarming mobs of people, Jesus sees them and he ascertains their spiritual condition. And he sees them for what they really are, not just an annoying mob of people, but weary, wandering, and wanting people. How does Jesus see them? Look at, look at verse 34. Why does he feel compassion for them? Because they were like what? They are like shepherdless sheep. They are like neglected, abandoned sheep. If you don't know, sheep are incredibly defenseless. They are completely, utterly dependent on a, on a shepherd for survival. In all of the episodes of Steve Irwin's show, when he's, he's, he's reviewing, he's covering and, and telling us all about these exotic animals that, you know, this can kill a man by doing this, and this can kill a man by doing that, and this can kill a man by doing that. You know, he, in all the episodes, he never covered the, the, the killer sheep of the wild outback. You know, I never heard him go, Crocky, look at the world's most dangerous sheep. Never, I never heard him say that. I never heard him say that. And you know why? Because sheep aren't dangerous. Sheep, there, there are a million ways that sheep can die. There are a million ways that sheep's lives can become miserable. They need someone to guide them to food and to water. They need someone to make them and compel them eat the food and the water that they have been guided to. They need someone to lead them to a place where they can rest. Get this. They need to be compelled to actually lay down and rest. Remember, like, that's how, that's how kids are. That's how children are. They, they need to be put down for a nap. When you get to a certain age, you desperately want to take a nap, but you can't. But that's what sheep are. They need to be led to food and water. They need to be led to resting places. They need to be cleansed. The, the stuff in their wool, the lanolin, just it, it attracts uh, everything, everything. Like Velcro, it collects everything. I'm not going into detail. It, if you can imagine it, it collects it. They need someone to mend and to salve them. They need someone to... Uh, uh, give them medicine and, and cures. They need someone to protect them against predators. And even if they fall over, they need someone to put them back on their feet. They cannot get right side up after they have fallen over. They even need to be led f- through the, uh, the right place to, to traverse a brook or a creek. If they, if they try to wade through water that's too deep, their wool soaks up the water. I told you it attracts everything. And they will actually drown in an amazingly shallow body of water. There are a million trillion ways sheep can die or otherwise be miserable. They are utterly dependent on a shepherd. And beloved, no good shepherd worth his beans would let his flock be found wandering without his 
without his care, without his supervision. So Jesus looks at them with shepherd's eyes. He has a true shepherd's heart. He is the good shepherd. And so when he sees God's flock abandoned and abused, uncared for, neglected, he gets angry. He gets agitated in his soul. He gets emotionally affected because he has a shepherd's heart. Now, as I said earlier, I, I, love, I love this phrase. I love this word compassion. For those of you who know me, this is one of my two favorite biblical words. One of them is an Old Testament word. Both of these words help clear your throat. The Old Testament word chesed, and then this word splachna. Say it with me now. Splachna. Morch. Splachna. Yes. It's the word, I hope none of you are about to go eat soon. It's the word for bowels, inner parts, or, or guts. And the reason why the Greeks used this word for compassion is because deep in here, inside, is where you feel it. When, when you see someone, when you see something, when you see, when you see something pitiful, when you see someone in a miserable condition, you feel it in here. You feel it deep inside. Your, your insides churn. You remember back in the 90s or maybe even the 80s, you remember the the, um, the commercials where you could uh, send your money to some agency where they're going to help orphans overseas and they're, you know, they're playing this, this really soft, melodious uh, tune and, uh, and there's all these kids and they, they're sad and they're, you remember how you felt when you saw that for the first time? That was your splachna reacting. Jesus sees these people and his his insides churn. So he's he's tired. His disciples are tired. And sure, most, if not all, the crowd in the next day or so are going to walk away from him in unbelief. Sure, they're fickle. Sure, they're shallow. Sure, they're unhearing and unbelieving. And on top of that, as we're about to see, there is a very real practical problem that they need to be fed and it's already quite late. So why is this their problem? So, sure, there, there's this practical observation that right now these people pose a legitimate, practical problem. It's a very practical problem, and it would have been completely reasonable for Jesus to, to send them away, to dismiss them. And yet, Jesus responds compassionately. I love that. He gives no regard for what he's going to get back. He gives no regard for his convenience. He just gives of himself again and again and again. Thank you. So yes, they're fickle. Yes, they're needy. No, this isn't going to be. A, there isn't going to be a substantial return for him. All of the all of the movement growth gurus and the professionals and the experts of the day would say you need to you need to sow yourself. You need to invest yourself in people that are going to give you a return. Jesus doesn't do that. He gives of himself to pe- with no thought about what he's going to get back from these people, and he invests in them because they're in need and they're hungry. Yes, they're hungry for food, but they're also hungry for teaching. 
and they're abused and they're neglected and they're abandoned by those who have been posing as their teachers. Who are, who's that? Pharisees and the scribes. These men looked down on the people. They, they were called the people of the land, the Hamarits, the, the people of the dirt. They didn't value these people. They, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they only came down to their level only when it was absolutely necessary. They didn't take the time to get into the trenches, to get into their lives, to disciple them, to teach them, to show them the way to spiritual food, to show them where and how their souls might find spiritual rest, rest in faith and trust in their God. They didn't do any of that. Instead, they made life hard for the people and they manhandled the people like hired hands. You can see Jesus comment on that in John 9. These, these leaders, these teachers of the people, they didn't treat, they, they didn't behave like shepherds. They were like hired hands. They would make life hard for the people. They, they saw the people as resources to be harvested and they made life hard for them by imposing religious regulations and ordinances on them that they themselves wouldn't even keep. And they perverted and voided God's word by adding to them, by adding to it and making it void. We're going to see that in chapter 7. They fleeced the people's resources, they fleeced their money, and they demanded their respect when they deserved none of it. Matthew 23, 13 to 16 has eight woes. And maybe some of you are feeling a woe right now, think, anticipating I'm going to read them all. I'm not. I'll give you a couple of them, and you can read that for yourself, Matthew 23, 30, 13 to 36. But the, Jesus says that the Pharisees shut off the kingdom of God from people and prevented people from entering into it. They devoured widows' houses. They made their disciples, their, their, their followers, twice the sons of hell that they were. They were blind guides, fools, serpents and vipers, condemned for hell, full of hypocrisy, full of wickedness. They were the self-appointed teachers of God's flock. God in the Old Testament never prescribed the office of the Pharisee. There was a, 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 an ordinance for the, for the priests. They, they didn't do their job good either. But the Pharisees were a self-appointed office that developed in the intertestamental period. And these are the handlers of the people. These are the people that, these are the teachers and the leaders and the shepherds that the people look up to. And Jesus is aware of every single mishandling, every single abuse, every single act of neglect on their part against God's flock. And it moves Jesus. It affects him emotionally, seeing the condition they're in. So yes, they're, they're fickle, they're annoying, but Jesus sees the bigger picture. He sees hurting people, he sees lost people, and his insides churn. So what does his compassion lead him to do? It leads him, verse 34, that he began to teach them many things. And maybe, maybe some of you think, oh great, these people are destitute and they get a lecture. But it's not like that. 
Jesus isn't just teaching them some tangential concepts. He's teaching them about himself. He's teaching them about himself and the kingdom of God and God's goodness and the gospel and the forgiveness of sins and their need to come to him and believe and be saved. Beloved, that is what shepherdless sheep need. They need to be brought into the sheep pen and into the compassionate care of the good shepherd. And the way you do that is by being exposed to the truth and believing it. So that's what Jesus gave them. They need to be brought into the care of the shepherd who not only can give them loaves for their bellies, but also the bread of life for their souls so that they may live. He gives rest to the weary. He gives truth to the wandering. And we'll see now in verses 35 to 44, Jesus provides food for the wanting. Jesus provides food for the wanting. When it was already quite late, His disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to them, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go, look. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. So we've seen Jesus' response. It was a compassionate response. It was a fantastic response. The disciples, we're still examining their response. What do you think? Pessimism? Cynicism? Are they, are they being selfish by wanting to dismiss the crowds? Are they just being negative and, and downers? Maybe. Maybe not. As we said earlier, it was a perfectly reasonable thing for, them, for the crowds to be dismissed. This, this shouldn't have been their problem. And as verse 35 tells us emphatically, it tells us twice, it was already quite late. This would have been between 3 and 6, and maybe you say, hold on, that's not late. I mean, we haven't even started thinking about what we're going to have for dinner at that time. But remember, this is, these people don't have electricity. These people don't have cars. And they're out off the grid right now. It's going to take maybe a couple hours to get home and prepare dinner. You didn't want to be out in the wilderness. You, didn't, you don't want to be out off the grid after hours. So 
the disciples aren't necessarily being rude or, or insensitive, that they're being humanly practical. And if the people are hungry and it's late enough that they can make it back home, or, or at least maybe they should go back, go out into the nearby towns to acquire food, that should be their problem. Why are, why are the disciples having to deal with it? Why is Jesus being expected to deal with it? I mean, after all, the, the, the crowd, did they, I, did, I don't recall them asking anybody if they could tag along. I don't, I don't recall them RSVPing to this, little, to this little party. So why is it Team Jesus' responsibility to feed them? Why is it the disciples' problem? And so they reason with Jesus. Send them home. Send them away. Let, let them deal with their problem. But Jesus says emphatically, he says, you, you yourselves, give them something to eat. You may not think it's your problem. I'm making it your problem. You do something about their need. You find a solution for their problem. Can you, can you what was going through their minds? He, he wants us to do what? He, he wants us to, he wants us to give them Food, all of them, like like all. Are you? Is he serious? Really? And and we're you know, he, here in the narrative. I, I'm skipping a little bit because in in this narrative, again, all four gospels share this. Luke tells us at this point in the story that there were five thousand men. Mark tells us this at the very end, kind of as a as a as a capstone, as a highlighting uh, a statement. There are five thousand men, and this is the specific word for men. Men means men. This is 5,000 males, 5,000 dudes. And a, a fair estimate is that for every man, there was at least one woman. And for every man and woman, there were a couple, you know, two to three kids. And so reasonable estimates for 5,000 dudes is twenty to 25,000 mouths to feed. Does, does that make the problem seem a little more problematic? I, I fret when we have four people coming over and I have to cook dinner for them. This is 25,000 mouths that need to be feed, need to be fed, and Walmart is closed. So we, you want us to feed all, all, of, all of them? Like, really? For sure? I mean, this is, imagine, a ball, this is like a, a casual Sunday ballpark attendance. 25,000 people. Again, in light of that, completely reasonable for the disciples to say, hey, let these people take care of themselves. After all, humanly speaking, they have no solution. They have no solution to this problem, and yet Jesus is telling them, go find a solution. Do something about it. And they have no solution. There is no food nearby and even if they did go into the nearby towns, which would have been some hike, some distance away, John's gospel tells us that they ask uh, rhetorically, not expecting an affirmative. They ask rhetorically, would even 200 denarii, you know, in, in, our, in our vernacular, we'd say, would a, would a million bucks be enough? Would a whole stinking wad of cash be enough to pay for this food? No, this is a massive throng. This is an army. Of people, eight, 200 denarii is about eight months' wages. That's a lot of dough, and even that's not enough for this massive crowd of people. 
And John's account tells us that Jesus knew what he was going to do. He, he's saying this to test them. Why? While he's looking for faith, he's looking for understanding and for trust in the men who are following him, and he's not seeing it yet. They're, they're, they're getting there. They'll be there by the end of the Gospels. They'll be there by Acts, but they're not there yet. That's a testament to the Lord's patience, amen? So he, he, why does he test them? Because he's looking for their faith. He's trying to draw out their faith. How does he test them? By, giving the, by presenting them with this humanly impossible problem and expecting them to put two and two together considering everything that they've seen and even everything that they've done. Remember, they, have, they had just gone out. And they had just been given power and authority. They had been given exousia, the right, the power, the authority to provide and execute supernatural solutions to natural problems. On his behalf, they went out and, did, and provided divine fixes to human problems. And here comes a human problem, a natural problem. And in light of all the stuff that they just went out and did, in light of all the stuff that they had seen Jesus do time and time and time and time again, you'd think maybe, maybe between either their ability to do something or at least Jesus' ability to do something, you think that they would anticipate a divine supernatural solution to this natural human problem. You'd think by now that they would anticipate that, but they don't. Because they're, they're slow. They're dull of heart. And they're standing there. They're just standing there as helpless and as clueless as the people. Maybe Jesus was expecting them to supernaturally produce the food. Then again, they weren't specifically told they had that authority when they weren't, went out the first time. So maybe, they sh maybe he was hoping that they would look to him. At the very least, they should have looked to him to do something. I mean, after all, what, what has Mark been convincing us? What has he been arguing since chapter 1, verse 1? This is the Son of God. God. This is one who comes in the name of God, preaching the kingdom of God, exercising the power of God. At the very least, they should have remembered that in the Old Testament, God provided manna and quail in, in a desolate place, Exodus 16. God, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, there was a, a widow, uh, there was a widow who had a jar of oil that didn't run out, and she was able to make cakes for weeks and months on end. Her needs were met. Matthew chapter 6, you know, they have heard the Sermon on the Mount over and over again. They have heard Jesus say, your heavenly Father knows your needs. Why are you worrying about what you're going to eat? Chapter 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then some of these things maybe will be added to you. Eventually, no, it's... All these things will be added to you. If you belong to Christ, you have a heavenly Father who will supply your needs. They should have 
grasped this by now. After all, they, 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 after all they had seen from Jesus, they should have anticipated he could do something. But they just stand there inert and helpless. But Jesus knows what he's going to do. Verse 38, he, he asks, how many loaves do you have? Go find out. He, it's almost as if he's anticipating that he knows beforehand that there are loaves out there. So he says, go find out how many loaves you ha- that, that, that they have. And word comes back that there is five loaves. That word loaf could be a loaf of bread. It could be a cracker or a wafer. I like to think of it as a wafer because that makes it seem even more minuscule. Just, it's not, wafer doesn't even sound weighty. Wafer. Wafer. So there, there's five wafer, cracker, loaves, whatever. There's two little fish. John's account tells us that this was a little lad's lunch. So if if this was a lunch or a snack for a little boy, what would it have done for a man? What would it have done for 5,000 men? What would it have done for 5,000 men, maybe 5,000 wives, and anywhere from 5 to to 10,000 or 15,000 children? They ask appropriately in in that passage of John, what what, what are these with, with so much? against so many people? The answer is it's nothing. This shows, again, the the slowness, the dullness of the disciples, the imperfection of their faith. They haven't grasped the truthfulness of Jesus' person. The magnitude of who he is, the magnitude of his identity hasn't hit them yet. They're, They're like an electric stove coil. The power is on. It, 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 power is there, but it's going to take a while. And when, when they do get heated up, they'll, they'll be useful, but they'll get there eventually. I am thankful that Jesus is patient with slow electric coil disciples. I'm grateful that he's patient with them because that means he'll be patient with me. So now it's time for Jesus to take over. Verse 39. He commands them to sit down by groups. And verse 40 tells us they did. They sat down in groups of 50s and of 100s on the green grass. Now, don't let that little detail slip slip by you. You try instructing a large motley crowd to sit down in a nice, organized manner, in a timely, neat manner, and, and see how you do. Just like he commanded the storm, just like he calmed the storm, he calms this crowd And they sit down like a coordinated assembly. When God speaks, his creation listens. And look where they sit. The last last bit of 39, what do they sit on? What? The green grass. Now, this does two things. This affirms that Mark got his information from from a first uh, from a primary source, I, either he was a witness or he got it, I think, from Peter, who was a witness. And a, a detail like that you don't include unless, unless it's provided by someone who was there. But also, Psalm 23 hit me square in the face. Think about this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Through what kind of eyes is Jesus looking on the crowd? Shepherd's eyes. 
And he is moved to compassion because they are wanting. He wants to make them not want. And want means to be without, to lack, to to be in neglect. So he wants them to be able to say, I shall not want. So, And then the psalm continues, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus just made, made the crowd sit down on the green grass. You prepare a table before me. My cup overflows. Boy, you ought to believe their cup's about to overflow. This seems like just a wonderful illustration of Psalm 23 coming to life. So verse 41, Jesus takes the five wafers or the loaves and the the two little pickled fish and he blesses it with a prayer of thanksgiving and and here it is, he, verse 41, he breaks the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. Now, I got, I, I've got to close but soon, but let me, let me bring to light six details that highlight the magnitude of this miracle. Because you just read, you read over it and it's like, well, where is it? It doesn't, it doesn't say that he, that, he, that he multiplied. It doesn't say that explicitly. But consider this, just to make the magnitude, the epicness of this miracle become more apparent. There are six of them. One, the presence of the imperfect tense. We've looked at this enough. I think, I think for, it, this should be sticking. The imperfect tense again and again and again and again, ongoing. He kept giving. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if, if you gave me two two pieces of uh, two fish and five pieces of crackers or five pieces of bread, I don't have to keep giving that out. But Jesus takes that and gives it to this crowd and then takes it and gives it to this crowd and then takes it and gives it to this crowd and he feeds 25,000 people. He kept giving again and again and again and fed this with that. Who said the imperfect tense? doesn't come out powerful so how much of the people received the food the second detail is that all of them received food at the end of verse 41 says uh, along with the loaves he divided up the two fish among them how's it how's he say all nobody left out nobody unaccounted for if you've ever been uh, at the line of a buffet or, or a party and you, if you finally get up to the food tray and then it's all empty. None of that. None of that. There was enough for everybody. And then the third detail, beginning of verse 42, they all ate. They all ate. Everybody got the food. Everybody ate the food. And nobody said, oh, I don't like fish. I don't do fish thank you nobody said that they all ate and i would say i would argue that just like the wine at the wedding of cana this was some good fish this was good fish fourth everybody who ate was satisfied not only did everybody get food not only did they all eat the food but they liked it and they ate a lot of it. They got to eat to their heart's content. I don't imagine these people of the land, 
these Hamarits, I don't imagine they got to go to banquets very often where they could gorge themselves, but that's exactly what the word satisfied means. It has the idea of a, of a livestock animal being fed and fed and fed and fed from a trough until it can't eat no more. It's like my dad used to say when we would go to the Sizzler, it's grazing time. Satisfied, gorged, filled. Five, or fifth, there were plenty of leftovers. There were 12 basketful pieces of leftovers. And think about this. Each disciple not only saw what Jesus started with and not only played a part in taking the food as it's given to them and then passing it out again. And, oh, there's more. Oh, oh, he still has fish. And, oh, there's, okay, I'm I'm doing this for a while. Not only are they part of the distribution service, they're part of the cleanup crew. And this isn't because Jesus is concerned with being green, but he has them pick up the, 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 each having a full basket so that they feel the weight of the food that's been miraculously multiplied. They saw the five crackers and the two fish, and now each of them has a basket weighing 15, 20 pounds of leftover pieces. They can feel the weight. That is a testimony that they could feel to them. It's a testimony to them that when they have solution, when they have problems beyond their ability to solve, maybe they should look to their master for a solution, that he is good and able and faithful to provide. And the last detail, the sixth detail, Mark provides it as an afterthought. It's, Verse 44, that there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. It's as if Mark is saying, oh, by the way, I knew that you knew that there was a lot of people. There were 5,000 men, which means there was a lot more when you consider the women and the children. Now, the point of this miracle is the same point as in all the miracles. What kind of man can do these things? things that's the question that the people asked that's the question that the disciples asked every time they saw jesus do the divine what kind of man is this mark told us one chapter one verse one he's the god man so the main point is to be confirmed in your mind jesus is the son of god knowing The weariness of his people, he gives them rest. Knowing the wandering of his people, he offers them truth that can save them. Knowing knowing their wanting, he nourishes them. He has proven time and time again, he is a God worth trusting. Amen? Let's pray.